Welcome to another episode of The Brand Called You. Today we have a very, very accomplished uh, lady, Dr. Shalini Lal with us. Shalini, welcome to the show. Thank you. And thank you so much for being here. Uh, Shalini is from St. Stephen's. She's from IM Ahmedabad. She went to UCLA and to Wharton, some of the top business uh, <laughs> schools and educational institutions. You worked for Mafoy, Bharti, uh, Escorts, Deutsche Bank, Infinity. You're a board member of IM Jammu. And now you're an, a very, very successful author. <laughs> God, what a, what an amazing track record. <laughs> And you did all this after doing economics <laughs> and uh, then moving to organizational development. Yeah. So shall we talk to us some, a little bit about your early life and what made you take all these choices? Thank you. So thank you Ashtar for having me. It's just so wonderful to be here. Uh, you know, when I was growing up, uh, this was the 80s and uh, pre-liberalization was still, you know, a time of scarcity. So if you were a good student, to be honest, you didn't really even exercise your judgment very much. You sort of went to the best rated place which accepted you. So I didn't, I mean, I had no idea about economics till I joined Stephens. I had uh, actually PCMB um, and I was dreadful at uh, bio and I didn't want to do like uh, <laughs> medicine. So eco was a default choice, but I loved it. I absolutely loved it. But when it came to doing a master's, um, econometrics was a little bit scary for me. And uh, the common belief at that time was that if you can get into an IIM, then that's the most uh, smart move from a yes. career perspective. Yeah. So I didn't really have much, frankly, uh, thought you know, into what course did I do, even what college did I go to. Uh, either Stephens or I remember, but they were all considered at that time, you know, the place to go if you got to got into. So I joined because I got into it. <laughs> so that's Absolutely. about it. Yeah. But things changed once I was there. Um, I got into Ahmedabad fairly early. So I was uh, had just turned 20. So, you know, I was really, really young. Uh, and one thing I knew was that from here on, I want to have more of a choice and it to be something that I really want to do and not just something I've managed to get into mm -hmm. and therefore, you know, land up doing. Yeah. So we had a program at Anandabad called Explorations in Roles and Identity, which is a really interesting um, course. You mm -hmm. just, you go off on, uh, you know, sort of a, a resort where you're cut off from all outside communication and uh, a group of 35 students with about four or five faculty members just talk for about 10 days. So it's mm -hmm. such an unusual program well, yeah. design. Mm -hmm. But through the course of that, people come up with insights that very often transform their lives. So when I went through that, and I didn't speak through the entire 10 days because I was just so busy taking in all that mm -hmm. was happening. But when I came back, I said, okay, this is it. This is what I want to do. Okay. So after that, everything has been far more you know, well thought out and uh, there's been a lot of me visible in the choices after that. So after I am Ahmedabad, it was uh, moved towards uh, organizational organizational development. development. In fact, uh, uh, at a time when nobody used to take gap years, like even the word did not exist mm -hmm. actually in our vocabulary, I did do that. Okay. So uh, Ahmedabad had this very nice um, policy that if you want to explore an area, whatever you think your heart is in, 
then you can come back for placement the next year. Okay. And uh, I came back to Delhi to work with uh, one of the faculty members of that program who operates out of Delhi as his research associate mm -hmm. to, you know, sort of make sure that this was indeed what I wanted to spend my life doing. Mm -hmm. And it is. And it has been. And none of that has ever changed. So that's what I did. And then I went back to campus and I took placement with Titan. Titan was the first organization mm -hmm. I joined. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, mm -hmm. uh, I guess once you discover what's, you Your know, passion. yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, everything changes mm -hmm. from there. So I'm going to ask you a silly question. Uh, a lot of our viewers would probably want to know that also. What is the difference between organizational development and human resources? <laughs> yeah, actually, a lot of people do ask me that. They do? Okay. Yeah. So, um, I'll tell you. Uh, you know, in business school, there's this course called Organizational Behavior, mm -hmm. and which is all about, you know, how do people behave in organizations and then how do organizational subsystems behave, like teams, like larger groups of people or even organization-wide. Mm -hmm. So organizational development is the application of organizational behavior. Whereas HR is a lot about processes around people. So, you know, recruitment, mm -hmm. uh, training, appraisers, etc. So HR, in a sense, is far more process-driven. Um, and it's, it's like, uh, it's further down the application stream. Organizational development says, okay, how do we make an organization effective? How can we use insights from behavioral sciences and the entire spectrum of behavioral sciences? So you have psychology, sociology, anthropology, social psychology, each, uh, you know, providing insights that are useful when you're designing an organization. So that's a really... And in large organizations, I assume these will be different departments. No, they aren't, which is the strangest part. So okay. when I, uh, you know, finished, I said, I want to work in OD. But there are no roles. Mm -hmm. So uh, when I joined Titan, in fact, uh, the natural fit for someone who's inclined towards OD lands up being training, learning and mm -hmm. development. So, you know, we tend to go down that path. Mm -hmm. But they're very rarely pure OD roles. Okay. That's a bit of a pity, actually. Okay. I agree. And where did you do your uh, doctorate and what was your thesis on? So my, in fact, um, my whole PhD happened mid-career. I'd already been working for 11 years and mm -hmm. uh, at the time when I left, I was uh, heading OD for Partly Televentures, the group. Uh, but I had a very strong uh, desire to uh, have deep expertise, whatever that deep expertise meant. And mm -hmm. I didn't really know what it meant except that I thought, okay, you know, somewhere you have to study something far more and I'm a, mm -hmm. I, I'm, I love learning. So, um, Applied to UCLA, uh, at that time there was a book called Built to Last, mm -hmm. you may have heard. So Professor Jerry Porras actually worked at Stanford and Bill Ochi had written this book on Theory Z. So because I had done a lot of work on transformation of Indian organizations okay. before that. Okay. So when I shared some of that, they said, okay, why don't you come and work with us? Mm -hmm. So both the Professor Bill Ochi and Professor Porras were my doctoral advisors. Okay. Uh, went to UCLA to study what makes organizations adaptive and how do you create successful transformation? Wow. So that became, and still is perhaps, I think, my core super specialty, if mm. you like. I agree. So when I was reading about you, you said that you're passionate about building better organizations. I'd love to understand from you, how do you define better? 
Um, so there are two levels of answer to that. One is what I would give a business leader, which is simply that uh, you want to do ABC, whatever that ABC is. You want to do, this is your strategy, this is your vision for your organization. If you don't have the right internal organization, it's not going to happen. Right. And uh, very often, in fact, uh, because founders, uh, entrepreneurs are very good at getting business and that their primary strength is seeing the opportunity getting the business, uh, they don't often pay enough attention to, but do I have the organization which will consistently deliver the outcomes needed to do well in whatever that is, you know, they've, they've, they've chosen. If was a business leader, I'd say a better organization is one which will get you where you want to go. Okay. But... I also have my own uh, <laughs> definition and a part of that and they connected is a better organization is one where uh, people are genuinely able to bring out the best in themselves. Mm. So uh, they are places where people are able to express their potential, their talents in ways that of course will help the organization accomplish what mm. it has to. But mm. In a sense, there's a slight humanistic uh, angle beyond the instrumentality of the end. And how would you evaluate if uh, an organization has gone from good to better in just the bottom line or will it be... The ease by which it can do what it wanted to do. So, for instance... Uh, most of my assignments are mm. like that. So if I work with a business leader, the business leader says, okay, this is our ambition. We want to do X, Y, Z, A, B, C, rule this world, rule that world yep. in two years usually. <laughs> then, the, you know, immediately the question becomes, okay, so what's the, uh, what's the internal organization which will get you there? Mm. And I focus on four areas. So I look at, do you have the leadership team for that? Does the leadership team have the capabilities, mm. for instance? Mm. Is it a team? Because sometimes it's not a team, yep. you know, it's just a collection of people. Yep. But is it a team? So are you getting the synergies which you know you would get if you have a well-operating team? Mm. So look at the leadership, look at what's the culture like? Like uh, do the behaviors which the culture encourage, do those behaviors serve your strategy? Mm. Because they don't always, you know, sometimes uh, your culture is pulling you in one direction yeah. and the behaviors you need for your strategy are actually something completely mm. different. So. Um, in a sense, when an organization is well designed internally and is a good fit for its strategy, it's just going to go smoother. It's like everything's lubricated. It's it's working well with it, you know, it, as a whole. All the pieces are interconnected with an underlying logic, which is very different from an organization which is create aspirations but just can't get its act together because mm. some of these critical pieces, leadership, culture, mm. design of the organization, or organization-wide capabilities are not able to come together. Mm. So that's, that's true. So one of the challenges I used to face when I was building Guardian was culture. And you know, we had 1200 people at our peak and it used to be a big challenge on how do you communicate, <clears throat> how do you build culture or what the culture is when the organization is new. What are Very your true. thoughts uh, on building culture for uh, a startup? See, the truth is that you will be building culture whether you're aware of it or not. Correct. It's almost like parenting. You know, you can, uh, if you, even if you abdicate being a parent and say you're not a parent, you are being a parent. Correct. And the kid is learning from you whatever it is that they are learning. Right. So you can either be conscious about what you're teaching the kid or the kid will anyway learn. Right. So it's, it's almost exactly the same mm. with culture. Uh, it's impossible not to create a culture. So random decisions which a business leader will take through the day like even as trivial as 
um, uh, you know, where should our office premises be? What should the office be designed like? Uh, what should a pharmacy in your case, you know, what should be the feel of the premises, which you would think, oh, what has this got to do with culture? But no, they're all interconnected because there's a philosophy which is guiding those choices. So uh, trivial or not so trivial, like who's going to be in your leadership team? What kind of behaviors will you encourage? What will you say affirm absolutely no to, to, you know? So without knowing it, you will, and any other founder, any other business leader will be creating a culture. If you are conscious of it, then it opens many possibilities because then it's something that you can very consciously guide because you will be guiding it in two ways. One, the random acts which you're going to do every day. And that's in the end, the most powerful method is just that. People are always watching a business leader to say, what does he think? What does he like? What does he not like? What can we do? What can we not do? If I do X, will I get promoted? If I do Y, will I be chucked out? Mm. So they're always yeah. looking at the leader for, okay, where Correct. is his head? You know, <laughs> what should I Correct. be doing? So anyway, you will be doing that. Mm. If you're conscious of it, then you will say, okay, fine. So what are the messages I'm giving? And am I consistent, you know, in that? And sometimes it's not easy at all, yeah. at all, because particularly if you're a fast-growing business, and I mean, who am I talking to? You've Hmm. done this so many times. You're faced with choices which are not easy because um, a choice which is good for your culture and sometimes you might think, okay, good for your business, you know, in a sense, you feel in that moment that there are many trade-offs, you know, that uh, should I really worry about culture, but this will make sense for a business. But actually... But I'll give you an an interesting example of where uh, culture failed me. When I started Guardian, I had come from a culture of ITC and, you know, when I joined ITC, not talking of 40 years ago, um, there was nothing called casual leave, medical leave, right? You used to get 30 days annual leave. If you were sick, you were sick. The company trusted you. So when I founded Guardian in 2003, I told the HR head, uh, she came and asked me, um, how much leave? I said, leave is earned leave. What about casual? I said, why should we have casual leave? If someone is sick, they're sick. And that backfired so badly because suddenly we found uh, people were sick. And, you know, it's so easy to get a medical certificate. And then we had to start changing culture at that stage. Yeah, but but it was it was a big big learning experience for me. Yeah, and I, I can imagine your challenge because you know ITC was such a strong foundation and it's a strong organization yeah. with a very very strong internal you know people philosophy yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like it don't like it but it's very much mm. there and it shapes you over Correct. you know Correct. so many years. Correct. This inherent trust that you have in everybody absolutely comes out of. Uh, the yeah. security yeah. large organizations provide. Yes. That's true. So what are some of the basic mistakes startup entrepreneurs make when they are setting up uh, with regard to people policies or development of the organizations? And, mm-hmm. you know, today there are startups yeah. mushrooming everywhere. Such a good question. You know, um, five people will start the same business differently, mm-hmm. as of course you know yeah. that and we all know that. Uh how consistent can you be in the way you design? And I think uh, the biggest challenge, definitely for a startup, because everything is new, but also even later when you're a you know business leader who's just come in, is 
do you have an underlying internal philosophy that's tying everything together? Because if you have that internal logic and internal consistency to your messaging, which will then reflect in the people you hire, how you choose to give them, you know, even, you know, who you will hire will affect the kind of leave policies, mm. will affect, you know, the... So there, there's an internal logic which is needed. Mm. If each of these are treated as, you know, one decision here, one decision there, without necessarily an underlying logic. In a sense, it's not very different from strategy. And strategy is what the organization does in the outside world, right? And um, just as strategy, a successful strategy is as much about what you choose as what you choose not to do when everybody else is doing what you choose not to do. It's almost exactly the same with you know, building a great organization. It's as much about what you choose to do as what you say you will not no. do. Because that's, it's in those choices that the real values get revealed. Uh, and it's not easy to make those choices, either in the outside world in strategy or in the inside world of the organizations, because a choice sometimes feels like you're giving something up in the moment. And that's never so, that is so simple that to is so do. True. So I, I would say that the biggest mistake uh, any business leader, but particularly perhaps an entrepreneur would made it, uh, be clear on what your philosophy is. Because if you live that, you will find the right people, mm-hmm. by the way. They always exist. Just mm-hmm. like, you know, you will find the market for whatever your Absolutely. brand is. Correct. If you're, if you're consistent with it, yeah. right? Yeah. It's almost the same thing. Mm-hmm. You will find the right people if you are sure that you are going to be absolutely consistent and you're going to follow it, you know, in everything. So it's almost like an internal You know, strategy. you, you, you <laughs> said this uh, so well. I was talking to an American friend whose company does business in China and India. And I said, what is the difference between uh, working with Chinese and with Indians? And he said that, you know, it's very difficult to get a Chinese businessman to say yes. And it's very difficult to get, a, get an Indian businessman to say no. I know. So, so that seems to percolate even within our organizations. That's very, very difficult very to say. Yeah. Very, very true. Very interesting. Uh, so when, you know, uh, startup entrepreneurs are building uh, their organizations, uh, they obviously have heard a lot about defining culture, about how to uh, build culture. And you've said, of course, that like a parent, you're defining culture every moment that you're building it. But what are some of the things one should watch out for? when you're building an organization as you define culture? So I, I hear some giveaways, you know, if you find that the kind of people who are rising in your organization and are doing well in your organization are not the kind of people who match your philosophy, then there is some internal, some pieces are not adding up. Mm-hmm. And that's like a sign that it's not, you know, something is something is not quite working. Because if everything internally is, you know, like perhaps an ITC, that mm-hmm. if you didn't really, you weren't an ITC person in terms of values, you were probably not going to be in the leadership team of ITC, right? You would have gotten weeded out at some point. Uh, if you have a strong internal consistency, you will find the kind of people you want being successful actually being successful. If you find that the kind of people you want to be successful are actually the ones who are leaving your organization, you know, at the first opportunity, or you're not able to attract them, or, uh, you know, you're just not getting that mix right, 
then watch out. There's something which is going wrong. Something in the whole mix is not quite working. Either your own leadership style is not conducive to the kind of person that you think you are, you know, you want, yeah. or or something else. But you know, maybe it's not designed correctly or not incentivized correctly. But there's something definitely which is not not working. I so I think for a founder, this internal consistency is really, really important, and it's really, really hard to do because the pulls are so many. And I, I face it mm. frankly. Mm. I, I know that as a business woman now, I hate saying no to business, yeah. and uh, I have to keep telling myself, but you have to say no to business. Because otherwise you can't do good business. Correct. Absolutely, correct. absolutely. <laughs> it's really, really difficult. So, so, so as 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 an as an uh, entrepreneur who's now said a fifty crore, a hundred crore business, um, how do I determine whether uh, you know my cultural direction, if I can use that word, is in the right, uh, is taking the right yeah. path? Yeah, I think should, should it be an you know, outside evaluation that should be done? You could do it internally as well. It's up to you. The key question is: A culture promotes some behaviors and inhibits other behaviors. Okay. And you know, we see that when we go to another country. Give me an example. So, like when we are in India, mm -hmm. we might see a red light as a suggestion. Okay. But when we go to another country, yeah. when we see a red light, we are like, "Okay, it's the firm stop, yeah. right?" Yeah. So each of us takes cues mm -hmm. from whichever world we're mm -hmm. in on what exactly should we be doing. Very interesting, yeah. And in a sense, human beings are very adaptive. Mm -hmm. You know, we are, and I think Indians are particularly adaptive. Whichever country we're in, very quickly to read the signs, mm -hmm. okay, here, this is okay, here, that is not okay. So we'll quickly mm -hmm. adapt our behavior to respond to that particular, you know, mm -hmm. situation. Mm -hmm. Exactly the same in organizations. People are very quick to read. Here, this is okay, that's not okay, okay, not okay, whatever, whatever, whatever. If you are getting the behaviors you need to be successful in your business, you are doing well. Mm -hmm. If you are not getting the behaviors from the organization which you need to be successful, there's something which you need to see what, what is going on. So if you have the right culture, you the natural behavior of people will be what you want it to be. I see. In a sense, it's like... Um, it's a socialization, mm -hmm. so it is a socialization mm -hmm. actually. So if people are very interesting, <laughs> <laughs> very interesting. Okay, next next question that I have is that you know you've spent a lot of time in strategy, and um, I think one of the big problems startup entrepreneurs face is they don't define strategy well. Hmm. What are your thoughts on that? So uh, I mean I. I if they're really early stage, I guess it's really hard to because they themselves are trying to find what's the product market fit, mm -hmm. who are they, and it's partly their own journey of evolution of you know what our strategy is. The reason why I work with business leaders from a strategy perspective is that I find it it helps very quickly um, uh, give in their heads and to our whole piece of work a very um, strong business and results mm. orientation. So that's the reason why that's my favorite, uh, you know, uh, starting point mm. with organizations. 
But I completely understand the kind of pulls which uh, entrepreneurs have at the start because they don't know. Mm. They don't know till they are on that, you know, that J-shaped curve of experiencing success mm. and therefore being able to define a strategy which is going to hold for mm. whatever amount of time. Sure. Anyway, today, timelines for any strategy, the lifespan yeah. is getting shorter and shorter. Yeah. So yeah. that's the bit of a challenge Very for them. Very interesting. So moving on, Shalini, um, you know, you've just written a, a book, yes. The Secret Life of Organizations. Um, I'd like to hear a little bit about this book. And yeah. So this is written because my kids are graduating. Okay. And um, so the irony is that, you know, I've studied so much about culture, organizations, spent my whole life working in it, primarily because I was a slow learner myself. And uh, when I joined uh, the organizational world, I... You know, I felt I was really, really naive mm. and uh, I understood people, but understanding people and organizations at that stage is not the same thing at all. So it's been 25 years of working with organizations in some form. And uh, since my kids were graduating, I felt I should put this down on paper that if you're a young person just entering the organization world, Here's something that will help you understand how organizations actually operate because yeah. nobody will tell you that. Mm-hmm. Nobody will be able to articulate it even if they know it somewhere. They're operating with those principles at the, uh, maybe at a not, mm-hmm. not necessarily at a conscious level, yeah. but they're using them. But it's difficult to find people who can articulate all of this for you. Sure. So frankly, uh, that's the reason why I wrote the book. Okay. Uh, to help young people say, okay, what the hell is this that I've got myself into? How can I be successful without even understanding this world that I've entered? So So in your own way of mentoring children, now you're going to be mentoring everyone who reads. (laughs) Well, I hope so. I still haven't got my kids to read it. (laughs) I have to say that's turning out to be the biggest challenge. No, that I agree with you completely. I mean, I've written books and so many people have read it, but my children have. Oh, okay, fine. So, so, so you understand. <laughs> so my daughter carries it in her bag. So she works for Zomato. So, you know, she's actually living in that world. And she always promises me, yes, I will read. And I say, please, this was written for you. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. So, yeah. But tell me, uh, you know, uh, and this is I'm going to relate to a startup. You've co-authored this book. Yes. Um, how important do you think is it to have a co-founder? Um <laughs> When you are starting a new enterprise? That is such a good question and one which I'm still trying to find a good answer to. So the obvious question is, I think having someone compliment you is so important because each one of us, no matter how great we think we might be, are probably terrible at a million other things. And a business needs so many capabilities to be able to succeed. Yeah. Maybe you have it in one person, but what are the odds of that? Yeah. You know, So the chances are you don't have it, at least all of them. Yeah. Uh, and it's just so much, uh, so much better to find a partner who can compliment you. Now, having said that, the reality is it's not always easy. Mm-hmm. One is finding people with the right capabilities yeah. who should then be interested in your business idea mm-hmm. and be at the right stage of their life Correct. where they, you know, intend to... Uh, become entrepreneurial and they should have at least some common underlying you know philosophical agreement values agreement so that you work well together and that's incredibly hard to actually find 
I'm frankly searching for co-founders to compliment me and things I'm not so good at. Mm. Uh, and so I'm, I'm learning about it the hard way myself, trying to find people who will have the skills, but I don't think I'm that great at it. Or at least I would much rather somebody else, you know, focus on some of the other areas mm. so that we can really do well as a team. I agree. And I guess if you have a co-founder, while it's very critical to have complementarity of skills, going back to our old question, how do you handle complementarity of culture with your co-founder? Yeah, that's a really, really good question because you both, it's like almost a marriage, you mm. know, it is like a marriage yeah. actually. And just like uh, my husband and wife come from different worlds when they start that's off <laughs> and then true. somehow have to agree on, you know, uh, sometimes successfully, sometimes not quite so successfully on, you know, okay, so what's going to be the culture of our mm. family? It's like, it's really exactly I, the same and therefore as hard. So in fact, I reached out to some fairly successful entrepreneurs as I was starting out and I said, tell me founder, no found, no mm. co-founder, what should I do? I think I'm really good at this. I think these are other areas I don't know what to do with. And uh, they were all like, yes, co-founder, except one who said absolutely no co-founder, mm. which was another story. Uh, yeah. This entrepreneur had just ended a partnership and therefore it had such a, it was like almost going through a divorce, you know, mm. <laughs> so it had such a yeah. painful experience yeah. uh, that this entrepreneur said, no, absolutely not. If you can do it by yourself, you do it. Uh, but most of them would advise you for the same reason mm. and yet they'll tell you it's as hard as marriage. Mm. That's which, true. Which is a big deal, right? <laughs> I agree with you. So, you know, given the kind of uh, work you've done over the last 25 years and raised you know, great kids, had a strong home, how have you managed work-life balance? You know, uh, so I was really young when I started out. So I was 20 when I went to Ahmedabad, 22 when I graduated. In fact, I wasn't even 22 when I graduated. I was still 21 and a half. Um, and I got married within a year of graduating. Um, so I, I had a very strong nurturing instinct. Mm. I wanted to raise a family. In my own mind, I always had the two kids, one dog, you know, <laughs> I think probably it's a socialization by mm. advertising, mm. but whatever. Mm. I always had that very strong desire to raise a family right. and be a mom. And I used to, and I'm going back to early 20s, how we used to think. I used to think that if I can't do this well in my own family, you know, it's the same thing. How do we help people reach their potential? How do we help people, you know, be really good at what they're doing? Then it's not going to be like, how am I talking about this in other places? So, so in my own mind, I had for many, many years uh, said, okay, the kids have to grow up really well and I have to somehow design my life mm. around that, which required a tremendous amount of creativity, Creative. to be honest, because yeah. it doesn't, I mean, back in the day, there wasn't even the idea of flexible hours. I mean, those concepts did, hadn't as yet yeah. entered the uh, you know, organizational world, nor was there any consciousness of the fact that organizations should help women, uh, you know, manage the two like none Absolutely. of these ideas existed yeah. so some of the creative ways in which I worked with this was I had a version of infinity when my kids were just born actually mm. for two and a half years uh, that gave me some flexibility uh, it was very stressful as well but it gave me some flexibility so when my son was just 10 days old I did a workshop with 
the ayah and him on in the outside room so you can imagine how like it, what a crazy experience it was so for me it was a very big challenge because i had two very strong pulls my instinct to build the family kids was as strong as my desire to be great at this profession right. yeah. and it required a lot of creativity a lot of persistence i think mm. a lot of persistence that okay it will somehow all work out eventually <laughs> yeah. i have a lot of admiration for women because of the way they just multitask and manage so many different things, it is you know? so much harder yeah. i can tell you that now when my kids are grown up and i don't have family you know to in that sense they no kids they're all in their 20s mm. uh and i'm working in a sense like a man in the sense that you know i'm not worried about yeah. this yeah. or that i didn't oh this is so simple mm. what is there is the guy come when it's part of life because i've spent years trying to find how will i do pick up school this homework that test this project this uh, proposal you know it's just been yeah. so so difficult no full marks to you full marks to you Well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay so so uh, just a few a couple of more questions uh, you know I I asked this to all our guests uh, because I think it's important for us to talk about some failures uh, what are your biggest learnings from your biggest failures so it, it won't be like an incident but it'll tell you things that yeah. I have generally um, I think one of my biggest failures has been um, across many many uh, years of experience um, having a harder time you know putting my perspective across and this has been a very unnatural skill for me because my own natural style has been very you know okay i listen i'm a great listener and you know i can hear you you speak a lot uh but it's been very hard for me to find a style which says Yes, but this is what I mm. think about something. And that's been an acquired skill. The inability to do that for many years in many roles, not one, while knowing it's so important but still being unable to do, I think has been has been a big drawback. I think it's reduced my effectiveness in many roles mm. there as if I had been more able to more clearly state my perspective. Very interesting. So last question, Charlie. you know you've seen so many startups you've nurtured them you've done your own what would your advice be to a young startup entrepreneur go for it <laughs> so okay i'll tell you what when i was thinking of you know should i become an entrepreneur or not one of the first things i did was because i wear a you know research hat mm. half of the time i did a interview or research with many recent entrepreneurs like the Uh, 3 to 5 year old uh, startups uh and one of the things i was blown away by was just how confident young entrepreneurs who had accomplished something you know some level of because mm-hmm. they've gotten a couple of rounds of funding so okay at yeah. that stage were and i was like i am here in my 40s and i'm still like wondering should i say x should i say y and you're like okay this is it and this is the world So I realized that when we look at people who are uh, growing up in the corporate world because in the corporate world for instance or any other organization where not just mm-hmm. corporate non corporate as well uh you're always 
not always, but very often evaluating what to say based on what response your boss, your boss's boss, you know, you're sort of um, yep. tying it in with, will this work? Will this not work? Should I say this? Should I not say this? Uh, that you don't necessarily question. So what do I think? Yeah. Or you don't develop that idea enough, even if you know, okay, I think that, but how would I play this out further? Mm-hmm. And I think that um, experience of having something of your own because there's nobody whom you can now there's no reference right you only have to take all those decisions on your own and you have to find therefore your own set of answers Mm. to i think it's a great opportunity to discover grow uh and of course if you're successful it's financially very rewarding as well but i'm saying even keeping that aside but just as a learning growth experience and I think it's a humbling experience mm, in many ways. It's very humbling. Like, I don't think you can have being a good entrepreneur and being having a big ego. I mean, I know there are entrepreneurs with big egos, but at least on a day-to-day basis, they don't live together. Yeah, yeah. You have to keep saying, am I doing the right thing? What should Absolutely. I do better? How can I be better? You yeah. know, there's a humility you need to be successful. Absolutely. So I say go for it. <laughs> <laughs> Shandi, thank you very much for being on our show. You, your words of wisdom, your knowledge. I think everyone who listens to you is going to really appreciate it. Thank you, Ashish. Thank you, again thank you so much for having me over. Thank Loved you. it. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for listening to the Brand Called You podcast. Be sure to visit tbcy.in to join the conversation, access show notes, and discover fantastic bonus content. You can follow us on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Simply search for The Brand Called You. Thank you and see you next week.